Blog Talk Radio. This is true. Good morning or good afternoon, and thank you very much for being here. First, let's start with this is Gigabit Nation, and I'm your host, Craig Settles, and we're on the air every week to bring you um, news and developments in broadband, telehealth, and all things digital, uh, and how we can get broadband into places where it needs to be. Drew, are you here? I am here, Craig. It's great to be on with you. Excellent. We have done this a bunch of times, so <laughs> we're just going to jump right in here. Uh, the main topic for today is, you know, getting broadband into places where uh, it may not be easy or affordable, but, you know, with some of these uh, broadcasts and some of the guests that are going to be here, uh, we're going to definitely try to do our best to open up doors for for people, so let's talking about let us talk about the um, you know I want to start with a discussion on um, broadband planning. Um, you know, it's the first question is, are the days of the the seventy five thousand uh, dollar feasibility study uh, are they gone or are we still going to or should we expect to see those uh in these next rounds of um broadband grant programs well wonderful craig and and i just i just if you if you don't mind maybe we could just back up a second and and i i, I apologize if all of your listeners are, are expecting this but but um uh Tell me, tell me the, the context for uh, what we've already spoken about, or what you've spoken about in previous episodes of your your program. And and I would love to just give a little quick intro to myself, and uh, and so I can answer your question a little bit more 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 fully, if if that's okay, Craig. So sure, sure, may, sure. May not not a problem. Um, you know, actually, yeah. Let's let's start with um, you know uh, about you. What is your role in the broadband world well well thank you very much um i'm uh my name is drew clark i'm the editor and publisher of broadband breakfast which is a broadband community focused on better broadband better lives i'm I'm also an attorney in telecom and i work at the com law group where we help clients who have problems or challenges or opportunities in broadband and getting better broadband, and so we, we, we work with them. So I, I assume that the context for your question, uh, Craig, is that uh, you know we're basically moving on to a more advanced state of of uh, of, of the, the the broadband um, deployment, and, and there's about to be a lot more funds available for broadband. And so your question to me is about you know these these studies. Uh, uh, feasibility studies, I guess, is, is, is what they're sometimes called. And you asked me if they're they're on their way out, and so so I'm happy to answer that now that we've we've talked just a little bit about wh- where we're where we're at. Is that is that fair, Craig? 
Yes, no, that definitely is right on. Well, wonderful. Now, and, and forgive me again, but uh, and I know I just jumped on just before before two. Um, is is this? Are we going to talk you and I, or are we also going to have another guest join us here for this discussion? Uh, no, Cat uh, will be here uh, at two thirty. Okay. Okay. Very good. So. So we're we're talking, and and then uh, you're going to talk with Kat at two thirty. So wonderful. So uh, I am very excited to be with you, Craig. Obviously, we've we've been on on, on these these uh, shows before, uh, your show, and 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 obviously Broadband Breakfast, uh, and the the show we do we do Broadband Breakfast live online every Wednesday at twelve noon Eastern time. And, uh, and then, of course, it's available uh, for, for uh, rewatching and download and so forth. And so, you know, look, I'm hopeful that this feasibility study notion that uh, uh, kind of provided for consultants but not really quick opportunities. I think, I mean, the, the, the key value, and, and it is an important value, Craig, in, in um, you know, a consultants or feasibility is you need to know the landscape you're in, the data landscape, like where is broadband being offered already in your community? Because that's, that's an important input to these applications, right? And, and right now, there's multiple programs. The NTIA has got infrastructure broadband program, uh, broadband infrastructure program that's closed, but there are other programs still open, uh, such as the uh, connecting Minority Communities pilot program. That is a very significant program that was uh, authorized as part of the um, uh, uh, Consolidated Appropriations Bill. And this, this program, uh, Connecting Minority Communities, has $285 million available uh, for programs that, that bring um, uh, historically black colleges and universities together with broadband providers. So. Again, there's, there's multiple programs out there, uh, and this is not even talking about the fee-5 billion that we are all expecting will get passed uh, when the House and the Senate can agree on, on other items besides broadband, but that's already been agreed upon effectively, and the Senate has passed the broadband infrastructure legislation package that will put $42 billion into infrastructure, another twenty. Uh, $3 billion into uh, uh, broadband adoption and, 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 and other programs of that sort. But anyway, to, to your question, uh, I, I hope we've kind of merged, matured beyond those, those, uh, those days where, uh, you know, consultants, um, you know, provided but, but uh, you know, didn't necessarily move, 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 move it forward. Yes, that was definitely a, um, I felt was a problem where there was a lot of boilerplate um, you know, cut and paste types of uh, programs, uh, reports and, and feasibility studies and all of that that were supposed to move uh, the community closer to broadband. And a lot of times these things were primarily uh, doorstop, I feel. Um, what about pilots? That was, um, I haven't quite figured out if that is a prominent Part of the landscape, you know, do people include uh, uh, pilot programs as a result of these feasibility studies, um, or you know, or is it a rarity that people actually do some sort of a pilot program? 
Well, I, I don't I don't think there's a formal difference per se between a pilot and a non-pilot program. I mean, I, I, I have, of course, just mentioned the government program, Connecting Minority Communities pilot program. I don't know why they put pilot in the name. I mean, it may just <laughs> indicate it's not going to continue or something like that. But there's no, there's no real difference between a pilot and a non-pilot program from a broadband perspective. Yeah, I think that um, um, when Philadelphia in 2005 uh, had their plans for building a citywide network, um, they created uh, four or five different pilot programs in different parts of the city that would let the city uh, see how different technologies would work. You know, would it provide uh, wireless everywhere? Uh, you know, what, what were they coming in? You know, what would they be coming into? But also having these different vendors involved gave them a chance to look over different vendors and see how they responded and so forth. And I think that, uh, you know, in my, you know, in this 15 years or so in this business, I haven't really um, run across very many actual pilots where you build out some, some, some part of the infrastructure and then see how it performs over some, some period of time. I don't know, maybe you've seen some of those? I, I, I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess my, my answer to this question about, um, uh, you know, a, a, a pilot uh, program, and, and you, you referenced in your communication with me, a five-square-mile pilot network in a 25-square-mile city and, and, and something that Philadelphia had, had done. Uh, and, and uh, you know, again, I, I guess I don't, I don't really think of a difference between a <clears throat> pilot program and a non-pilot program. I think that we're, we're <laughs> in a stage where, you know, everyone knows we got to get broadband everywhere, right? And so it's just a question of getting it everywhere. And, and quite frankly, my only concern is that we, we are going to stop uh, uh, and not give funding uh, to, to, to areas in the country that need better broadband but, but have some kind of low-quality broadband right now. That's my biggest concern, quite frankly, Craig. So how, how do you mean? Uh... Well, what I mean is that, is that the, 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 the broadband infrastructure legislation sets a standard for unserved at 25 megabits uh, of speed down and 3 megabits of speed up, and it sets an underserved definition of 100 megabits down and 20 megabits up, and 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 again, you know, there's there's particular rules governing uh, the quote underserved the unserved quote unserved areas and the underserved areas. But my concern is that, you know, if if you've got quote quote 100 down, 20 up, there's really no no capability of receiving funds to to build a higher capacity symmetrical fiber. Uh, network. That's that's what I'm getting at, Craig. And that seems to be counter to what we should be expecting for our tax uh, tax dollars, right? I mean, why deal with you know these these partway solutions and not just take that money and and just go all the way, create a a broadband network that actually has some value and some long-term value. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, look, the, the trick is it's just getting it right because there's we have a landscape where there's public networks and there's private networks, and, and you, you can't really satisfy everyone all the time. And yet, um, you know, I, I, think, I think there's a growing consensus we need, as you called it, future-proof fiber networks. And mm-hmm. you, you've also, uh, in your, your preview questions to me, asked uh, some, some, some interesting, interesting thoughts about fiber-wireless combinations. So I'm, I'm eager to, t- to talk about those, those two, uh, Craig. Yeah, no, that, 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 that makes sense. Um, I think the, the question um, that it sort of in my mind has been the fact that we use the, the term future-proof, you know, which often is a code for fiber everywhere. Um, I wonder if in urban areas in particular is the a possibility of having a um, – a fiber network going to be affordable because you basically have to dig up a lot of concrete to bring that network into being. I mean, what's, what are some of your thoughts on, you know, on that as well? I mean, my, my thought is that uh, we, we need to um, uh, uh, be, there, there, there is a need to build fiber, absolutely, but, but I don't think that makes these utterly expensive, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. that there's still uh, the capacity to um, uh, build fiber networks without, you know, the, the, the greatest uh, expense. So, I mean, again, they, they are, they're not cheap. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying they're, they're, they're cheap networks, but, but we, we can still go for the best uh, – uh, quality networks without worrying about um, uh, um, you know d- destroying all kinds of uh, uh, you know concrete in the process. Right. No, I understand. Um, in Minnesota, several years ago, they had a program uh, with a with a strategy that says, okay, we will build a fiber ring around the, the, um, the uh, targeted um, cities, townships, and so forth, and then build wireless um, everywhere in that, you know, in that um, areas, and, uh, and build um, fiber over maybe a two, four-year period, right? So the, the idea being that you would... Um, build a usable, maybe 25 symmetrical wireless uh, capability, um, and then use that while you're building a um, fiber network. Uh, do you have some thoughts on, on that? <clears throat> yeah, no, I think that's, that's really a, a, great, a great idea. Where is, where is this project that you, you, you just referenced, Craig? Oh, this was in um, uh, two counties in uh, Minnesota. Yeah, they were very popular. They kind of we don't talk about them much much anymore. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'd love to learn more about them, but I, I think the way you've laid this out is to, you know, as you described it, build a fiber ring, deploy wireless over the entire area, 
And then as you generate revenue from the wireless subscribers, you can build fiber to the home. And this, this is a model I'm seeing more and more these days. So uh, a lot of wireless Internet service providers, for example, are, are uh, uh, contemplating and, and moving in this direction and have received funding through uh, programs, including the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, that uh, enable them to, 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 to carry these kinds of projects forward. So I think that's a really great strategy because I do think we're going to need to get fiber everywhere uh, at some point, you know, in the next 10, 15 years. You know, we, we, we really do need fiber to the home uh, everywhere. But, but there are short-term solutions that can uh, take some of the slack and, and, and wireless technologies have advanced an exceptional amount. So, so I, I think we need to get fiber deeper. Everyone agrees with that. Everyone needs to get fiber deeper into the neighborhoods. And so doing a fiber ring that enables, you know, wireless connections from those hubs and then, um, you know, ultimately move to fiber to the home is, is, a, is a good sound strategy. Okay. Uh, one of those, um, I don't know if you've uh, been following uh, Tucson, uh, they, again, have um, used sort of a variation on this theme. They went to um, and mapped out all of the fiber uh, that the city owns, uh, figuring out where, you know, where it is and so forth. Um, and then they um, looked at, you know, where there was serious need, you know, uh, uh, people having issues with uh, the home work gap or people just not having broadband at all uh, in their neighborhood. And they basically figured out how to use wireless powered by the um, fiber to then provide wireless connectivity to 5,000 uh, homes and at no charge, uh, partly because they got money from the uh, Treasury Department, part of the CARES Act. Uh, I think that was about $5 million. Um, but it seems like um, it seems like the Philadelphia dream sort of realized, you know, when we, uh, you know, fully wanted to do the same thing, but the execution was a bit off, the thought was good, and now Tucson is saying, we won't go everywhere with this wireless deployment, but we will go to the places where it is needed, and there's places that can be, um, you know, piggybacked off of the a final uh, the uh, fiber that's already laid in the ground. What are some thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, I think those those strategies make make sense. You know, um, and um, uh, I'm 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 a fan, right? Uh, I, I guess I guess I'd love to uh, maybe kind of get get a little deeper into it and what what it is that we we need to talk to, right? But but um, uh, you know, well, let's let's not be all uh, let's not be orthodox, all one or the other, fiber or wireless. I mean, the, uh, the yeah, most networks these days have some combination of fiber and wireless. I mean, even fiber to the home, for goodness' sake, often will have um, you know backhauls, right? Using uh, using gigabit uh, being 
beams, uh, high capacity beams from point to point. And so, so those are those are definitely part of the mix. And so we we definitely want to kind of consider and make sure that um, we're we're not uh, excluding people based on the use of a particular technology. Right. No. No. That that makes um, a lot of sense. Uh, one of the issues, um, you know, that that's being uh, talked about um, is the you know the issue of the incumbents basically messing up the um, you know the opportunity for getting broadband because they uh, either have laws that they uh, pushed that go against uh, municipal broadband or they have marketing tactics or they have um, you know lobbying tactics and so forth that just seem to get in the way are we going to ever have a point when we get past all of that, you know, is it, you know, is it, is it possible to, to get past all of this? Um, to get past what? Well, the, the, the incumbent being um, difficult. I'm being actually very polite, but, you know, we're, the wall they have, they, all they seem to have is uh, ways to get in people's way but they don't seem to um, move forward in the places where they need broadband the most. Yeah, I mean, look, the the, the incumbents don't want to build, uh, they don't want to go through the cost of building uh, fiber or better broadband capacity in areas that they already provide low capacity. I mean, that's, that's kind of the fundamental problem is you can't get someone to, overbuild themselves, so hence the need for more overbuilding by other entrants who are going to build higher capacity uh, networks in those areas that, uh, that, that, that need it. And no, we're not going to get past that, unfortunately, right? I mean, there's nothing that's going to change the minds of those who have invested in, uh, you know, low-capacity networks to, to build higher ones. And now, now okay, mind you, there may be some opportunities for partnerships between incumbent telecom providers and government, cities and counties and others, right, where the city mm -hmm. plays a greater role in owning, financing, uh, facilitating uh, such a network, and that private provider can, can operate it, right? Those are, those are some interesting models that we're seeing in different places that I think we could, we could see more of throughout the country. So, so yeah, that's maybe the way out. If if, you, if we need a way out, that's that's probably the way out of the, the, this puzzle, so to speak. Right, because um, that uh, now there has been uh, commentary lately about the fact that the Treasury Department, when you know when they they're giving out uh, you know some billions of dollars to um, to facilitate uh, improvements in in uh, within states right and um but they read not refine but they 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 clarified uh the role of uh um counties and cities and so forth um is there i don't know from your perspective is there likelihood that we will get more government um that would replicate uh, the Treasury Department's rules and basically say, 
we're going to make or make it available so that um, uh, municipalities can have a better um, role in these broadband projects. Um, so I, I think the, 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 the broadband infrastructure uh, program of the, the National Telecommunications Information Administration is currently um, focused on does uh, call, you know, government entities, cities, counties to be involved with broadband providers, right? Um, the, the, the rules that, that you're, you're speaking about here, the Treasury Department rules, um, I, I, think, I think those are applying to other, uh, other portions of the uh, broadband uh, uh, program. And, and uh, you know, where I always look for information, I look to muni, uh, muninetworks.org, which has mm -hmm. great analysis. And, and, um, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm excited for, for the, the, the rules that, uh, you know, have been, have been put in place on this topic, uh, and I, I think that uh, you know there's there's great uh, commentary on this uh, and how cities can can take advantage of these op this opportunity. Um, so uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm happy to drill more in, although I just I, I haven't looked at, at the latest details on the the, the, the particular rules there. But um, I'm I'm excited that, that, that there is the opportunity for new types of collaborations on, um, on, on broadband deployments. And, and, I, and I should say, uh, sorry, I, I actually uh, do, do have a little bit. These, these of course, are the, the, the Treasury rules discussed are, are part of the uh, American Rescue Plan, okay? So not the mm -hmm. Consolidated Appropriations Bill that I was speaking about earlier that has these rules. But the, the, uh, the, the rules on the American Rescue Plan provides $350 billion uh, for cities, not just related to broadband, but, but the, the municipalities uh, have, a, have a great opportunity to, um, you know, get involved in these, these, uh, uh, these projects uh, through, through them. Mm -hmm. um, this will be interesting to see how this all plays out in the end. Um, well, one of the... Um, issues that I think we need to discuss more, though there may not be a solution for this problem, but the problem is that, um, you know, you look at uh, the numbers of the billions of dollars that have been spent in uh, rural areas in a large part, um, where uh, year after year, we've put up, you know, we the taxpayers put up somewhere like five to six billion dollars a year you know and we've been doing it for a number of years right and yet it feels like we haven't progressed nearly far enough relative to the dollars spent and you know is this a um uh, a problem with uh, with no with no accountability is, is is the problem that we need to get more accountability. But how do we get how do we reconcile that we're spending so much money, but we don't seem to have a lot to 
see from all that spending? Yeah, I mean, this is a fair point, and and there's there's some uh, some some good groups out there, including um, uh, the uh, 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 group that uh, um, Bruce Kushnick is involved with, that have have tried to kind of get recompense for um, for, for for money that's been invested from public sector sources or or through universal service fund contributions, and and haven't uh, built build better broadband. Um, I mean, the, the answer is, yes, it is, it is money that's lost, and there is very little hope of redemption, unfortunately. And, but but I, think, I think where we go from this is how do we design rules and systems so we can design programs that facilitate higher capacity broadband and that encourage uh, construction of, of new uh, competing uh, networks uh, that are higher capacity than existing low capacity networks and and I know I know you you're very focused Craig as you appropriately should be on how do we kind of make sure urban communities uh, are, are are getting better broadband uh, you know although they, they 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 might seem to start from a higher place than rural communities there are you know severe dearths there's de- broadband deserts right in 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 inner cities too and 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 what what I talk about a lot Craig is I've been a kind of a uh, an expert and fan expert. Probably a bad word to use. I've been cognizant and really drilling into the details on broadband mapping for more than 13, 14 years. And uh, I have found, as I look at broadband mapping, that we need to be conscious of not just the reason for publicizing available broadband not just for subsidizing or supporting the cost of broadband, not just for holding uh, providers accountable for their broadband performance, but enabling new competitive entrants to access uh, fiber backhaul, right? This is why we need broadband maps. We need a broadband map so we can map the fiber and understand where you can connect to the fiber. So new entrants that want to get better broadband fiber connections in a neighborhood can access the maps and then they can, you know, enter into negotiations to get capacity backhaul that will enable uh, urban broadband deserts to get fiber to the home in those locations too. So, uh, you know, again, kind of trying to take your question about, you know, uh, the, the six billion a year spent uh, and where, where it's gone and say, well, let's let's talk about the money that's about to be spent, and make sure it's used for the best way possible. And that definitely is a, an issue. Um, I think that um, you know it, it needs to be addressed. As I listen to you, I see that um, you know we talk about the accountability aspect of it, and you know where does money go? Obviously, that has to change. But also, I think that some of the reasons we don't have uh, this better accountability is the is the mapping issue. So maybe um, you think, and this will be the last question. Um, do you think um, getting the FCC out of the mapping business and allowing either uh, colleges and other nonprofits to take the ball or private entities to take that um, particular 
situation and try to turn it around? Well, that's a very innovative idea. I mean, as you know, Craig, I was involved in the first round of broadband mapping, the uh, state broadband initiative from 2009 to 2014, and both in terms of kind of helping build the framework through my own crowdsourced site called broadbandcensus.com, and that's merged into Broadband Breakfast, but also having been invited by the, the then governor of Illinois, Pat Quinn, to lead the state broadband initiative entity in Illinois, the, the, the Partnership for Connect Illinois, and we actually did mapping, but we were a nonprofit organization in mm-hmm. Illinois, and we, we reported up through the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, and the Commerce Department, and Commerce kind of collaborated and worked with the FCC. But I, I agree that the FCC has made a great hash of, of, of maps over the past five, six, seven years, and, and they should not be rewarded, uh, in my <laughs> opinion, with, with more responsibilities uh, for, for that, that area. So I'm all for figuring out how to make this an open source problem, an open source solution to a problem. I mean, we just need we need maps out there, and then and then how do we get them populated and filled in? Well, I mean, I think I think what we're going back to is we're going back to the states, right? That seems to be the default answer. The the money under the broadband infrastructure program is going to go through the states, and states are going to be responsible. So state broadband offices will have a much more important role in the mm-hmm. in the future the immediate future and, and and as they as they should as they should be as they should have so so these are kind of some of the things i'm watching it's a very exciting time to be in broadband to be focused on broadband and i applaud everything you've done over the years and right now craig to you know b- keep the momentum on uh these these different efforts so um so thank you for that Ah, you're welcome, and and thank you for your your time today, obviously, but also the times that you have spent. I mean, we we've been in this this um this battle for better broadband, you know, with, with people like Chris Mitchell and and Joan Elvis, and it's been a small group, but I think there's a lot of work that came out of all of these individual efforts kind of pulled together. So I uh, also, you know, look forward to uh, your work and our, you know, being able to come together, uh, you know, and keep the fight going, keep the fight going. So thank you. Okay. Very good. Very good. Great, great to talk with you. Uh, uh, To listen to the next part of this, I'll just go to your link and, and listen in. So I'm very excited for for you to to next uh, be speaking with uh, Catherine uh, Trulio. So uh, I appreciate uh, this opportunity to visit with you, Craig. All righty. Thank you, Drew. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Catherine, it's your Hello. turn. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, how are you, Craig? Doing well as well. <laughs> oh, I, it's been a really good week. Um, I really appreciate your time uh, today and being part of this show. Um, you know, you have been involved in uh, libraries 
and uh, an increasing amount of that is looking in to, uh, to be um, manifested in healthcare content in libraries. And so um, I just am amazed and I am just uh, appreciating having this kind of a resource. So tell us about um, the uh, Libraries Without Borders and then we'll get to the like the, the thing that I'm most excited about, which is the, the laundromat uh, program. But uh, but for people that don't familiar that aren't familiar with um, uh, your organization, what do you do? Sure, um, and thank you again, Craig, for the opportunity to to, to speak. Um, so for context, uh, Libraries Without Borders is the U.S. branch of Bibliothèque Sans Frontières, um, which is an international nonprofit um, with an HQ in Paris, France. And we're an organization that works to promote equitable access to information. And in the U.S., um, what that looks like is often to bridge the digital divide. We work um, in library, or we partner with libraries and um, local nonprofits, even local uh, governments to set up pop-up libraries and learning spaces in, in public places. Um, so as you mentioned, um, our flagship program is the Wash and Learn Initiative, and it's uh, setting up pop-up libraries inside laundromats. Um, but we also have a number of programs uh, working in manufactured housing communities, um, in uh, recovering community centers that have been uh, subject to destruction through natural disasters, uh, which is our, our biggest program now in Puerto Rico, and a number of other uh, collaborations with community gardens, um, religious organizations, and um, even uh, recreation centers and public parks and housing lobbies. So the list goes on. I can, I can go into greater detail about those. Um, but internationally, um, we're really well known for working um, in refugee camps or um, with uh, internally displaced populations uh, all over the world, um, from Jordan to Australia to Colombia uh, and Senegal. So our, our work really um, spans you know, uh, a number of different thematic areas of focus and seeks to serve a number of different um, audiences. Mm -hmm. Would it be accurate to say that um, your organizations come in and they bring resources that brings the library into some really uh, crazy situations that you have to, uh, you know, deal with. I mean, if I look at your um, international um, uh, programs, are the programs that you have in the U.S., are they similar um, in some way, or um, are they distinct? You know, there's international and there's the U.S. How do you say talk about that? Sure. Um, I think that if you had asked me this question a few years ago, I would very quickly answer they're completely different. <laughs> um, <laughs> the international programs have a tendency to focus on um, working in a humanitarian emergency context or, you know, post 
a, a huge natural disaster um, and working in uh, places that often lack infrastructure and i'm and i'm talking about basic infrastructure like access to electricity um mm, or okay. even uh not you know not like not just even internet but electricity or lacking even things like tables and chairs um so so um our international efforts are um i would characterize them as much more international development uh in in terms of like the approach and also design of, of these projects. For instance, we have um, a tool that's called the Ideas Box, and it's a pop-up library and multimedia center that was designed specifically to go on a, like a humanitarian pallet. So it can you know, be deployed in any context, and the Ideas Box itself is energy independent, so it, it comes with a generator, and it, it also comes with a, a satellite for internet connectivity, not to mention, um, you know, tables, chairs, physical books, laptops, tablets, a mini theater. Um, and that's really uh, one of the big differences uh, in, in terms of at the international level, um, we're often the only um, library uh, or learning space that's available within a specific context, be that a refugee camp or um, de demobilization zones in, in Colombia. Um, whereas in the U.S., by and large, um, most of the communities where we work have access to electricity um, and, uh, you know, the other um, infrastructure elements that I've mentioned. Like, we don't need to bring tables and chairs often um, to the laundromats that we're working in or uh, in the community centers that we're working in. Um, but we uh, often have to focus more on transforming an existing space and activating that space and making it so that it's warm and welcoming and functional um, in addition to uh, bringing it to life through partnerships with um, libraries and um, local nonprofits so that they can bring their services uh, into laundromats or into these other um, shared spaces and literally meet people where they are with the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. The, um, you know, it, it, what's interesting and sort of why I got involved with the, uh, the library side of things, which is where you and I and your company met, um, is mm -hmm. that libraries in the U.S. have a long track record um, of getting broadband and technology into uh, far-flung areas of the country. And in some places, uh, the, the broadband that comes from the library may be the only source of broadband in, in some of the rural areas and so forth. And so as, um, you know, I've looked at the, you know, the question of telehealth, it seemed like there is a natural fit, but I want to know how you or your group started the Wash and Learn program, and is it sort of using the same um, policy of, you know, the library has a, uh, you know, a track record of bringing technology into parts of the community that may be been forgotten? Sure. Um, so... We are uh, very fortunate um, at Libraries Without Borders to have forged a partnership with the uh, network of the National Libraries of Medicine. Um, so at the national level, we 
uh, work with them to provide um, health literacy uh, curriculum for facilitators who go into our wash and learn laundromats to provide health information uh, to community members. Um, mm -hmm. And this is uh, essential to our work because we believe that good information and good health go hand in hand. And by ensuring that um, the information that we provide uh, through Wally sites um, is um, you curated by experts, namely librarians, and in particular uh, medical and health librarians, we're able to um, provide a high standard of um, health information and promote health literacy for communities that often don't have access to um, either the, the technology or the internet that's then needed to find this information and even participate in telehealth. Mm -hmm. How did you come across, you know, the laundromat as a, as a uh, major community resource that can be meshed with library services? It was uh, almost, I think, completely an accident. <laughs> um, oh, okay. <laughs> we were invited by, <laughs> by, I mean, it was, a, it was a, a wonderful accident, I would say, because we, um, this, this happened around 2015, 2016, um, when the New York Public Library um, invited us to showcase the Ideas Box, the pop-up library uh, tool that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, you know, following that exhibition, we had this, this wonderful, colorful, vibrant um, tool uh, in our possession. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could um, like bring a program and activate it um, so that folks um, in uh, a community in New York, specifically the Bronx is where we ended up setting it up, could uh, take advantage of all its resources. Um, so that pop-up space worked really well, uh, set up, or the Ideas Box worked really well, uh, set up in this park, but we, knew that um, it wasn't going to be a sustainable solution because uh, it gets pretty hot in the summer, for instance, and uh, uh, yes. who are at the park are, are at the park aren't necessarily there so that they can log on to the internet or you know mm -hmm. use the computer. Mm -hmm. um, so we were trying to figure out. Well, obviously there's the need, but maybe the park isn't the best place for for this type of intervention or this type of program. Um, mm -hmm. And we were just kind of walking through the neighborhood, actually, um, and we noticed that even in the middle of summer with, you know, the, a heat wave going on, that there were always folks inside the laundromat, because regardless of your circumstances, like, you always need access to clean clothes, right, You and you're going <laughs> to... Uh, you're going to be stuck in a laundromat for, on average, 2.5 hours. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was, you know, just by making this observation that we recognized the laundromat's actually a really good place to meet uh, communities, to meet community members, and to meet people where they are. Um, it's, it's very um, fortuitous because we have a captive audience when we're, you know, at the laundromat. Mm -hmm. um, so. It's a really wonderful opportunity to share um, a number of resources from early learning and literacy materials to um, health and digital literacy skills. Uh, and again, by partnering with libraries and other local nonprofits, we're able to uh, transform and activate these spaces within laundromats so that community members can take advantage of a number of different resources. Okay, now that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Now, was there 
my great, um, I don't know, uh, a great number of folks that responded to the idea. Can I, can I, I can't imagine that the first couple of times you talk to someone and say, oh, we want to do, you know, library services at the laundromat. I would imagine a couple of people's jaws kind of drop. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think there, there, um, there's been, you know, to some degree, a uh, surprise from folks about, oh, you're planning to bring the library into the laundromat. That's interesting. <laughs> um, but most of the time, the reaction that we get is, wow, that makes so much sense. Like, that, why hasn't mm -hmm. anybody done this before? And the truth is that different um, community organizations have tried to set up, you know, little free libraries or um, they have like a, a book lending uh, system at neighborhood laundromats, but it's never been done um, on a systematic um, level where we make a concerted effort to always engage um, the local library and other community-based organizations, um, not just to, you know, provide a bookshelf or um, a few laptops and make sure that there's internet. So it's, it's much more, uh, more than just ensuring that there's access to resources, but then making sure that those resources, materials are, are, um, are able to be taken advantage of by the community members themselves and, and that they align with and reflect um, community interests. Mm -hmm. Now you, I assume, well, you and your group have done a number of uh, needs assessment. Uh, this is like a big part of my um, report on uh, telehealth in the, in the libraries is that the needs assessment to me is like, Stellar. I mean, you cannot move forward with any hope for success unless you do a good, um, you know, needs assessment, right? And that's my approach of, you know, dealing with broadband in general, right? But is your experience that um, that the needs assessment is key to your success? Absolutely, absolutely. Without a without conducting a preliminary uh, community needs assessment, and then, um, you know, committing to uh, continuing regular assessments um, after launching a program. Um, we're not going to be able to provide anything that um, is relevant to community community needs if we don't understand what those needs are in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really at the heart of everything that we do, and we always, um, you know, we we've since iterated and improved upon our um, approach to conducting community needs assessments um, over time with experience, um, but it's, it's absolutely essential to everything that we do. We want to understand, you know, who is, who's in the community that we're serving, what resources, assets currently exist, right, what services, programs, or outreach efforts um, are missing, and how are people using a space? Um, what changes need to be made so that it, that space can uh, be even more um, functional and, and welcoming, as I mentioned. Um, also looking at things like when do people visit the laundromat or visit this, um, like a public space that we're interested in working in. Uh, the, all of those questions need to be answered beforehand before we can even begin thinking about what program or project would make sense. Mm -hmm. Now, I would say that this would be a good time 
for folks to understand that telehealth, um, you know, the upside of the pandemic is that it made people aware of telehealth, but they only looked at telehealth as a uh, action between a patient and a doctor that happens on the uh, video screen, right? Whereas telehealth, a large component of telehealth is making um, content available that people can take action in response to. And this, to me, seems to be a big part of what you're providing. And then you can tell me if I'm right. Um, but it's that the, um, the interactive content where people can actually learn something and then take action, this is the telehealth version of, of, of what needs to be done in a lot of communities. Would that be a correct? correct. And I think, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that, you know, in order for telehealth to, to be fully effective and make a difference in people's lives, people need to have um, pretty solid health literacy skills. And so a lot of what we do is, uh, is more of laying a foundation so that um, people can uh, have access to good information, reliable information that has been curated by experts um, so that we can help folks understand their own health better, um, mm-hmm. where they can, uh, where, where and how to access care, prevent, you know, negative health outcomes, or even um, how to identify misinformation. I think that's something that has become increasingly relevant um, with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's really about um, <laughs> giving people an opportunity to verify the information that, that's out there and that's relevant to their lives. Um, because, yeah, with, without, without uh, solid health literacy skills, you can't really take advantage of telehealth services. Um, mm-hmm. Or you won't know how to. You won't be. You won't be able to do so. Um, so I think, yeah, now more than ever, really um, having the tools to um, understand health information is, is absolutely essential, and, and that's um, that's core, central to um, how we develop content and and how we structure programming. Mm-hmm. Do you anticipate that at some point? Um, people will become comfortable with the idea of maybe having their blood pressure checked or having some sort of um, test for diabetes um, that could be either facilitated at the um, laundromat, right, or can be done online where you're just basically using the, the laundromat as a location for the transaction between healthcare professionals and uh, residents in the community. I think that um, based on my experience with um, running uh, programs that involve um, health or health literacy in particular, uh, laundromats and churches and community gardens have been really good um, uh, access points uh, to provide folks with information and potentially um, we have hosted events where um, there was um, like, there, like uh, public health um, experts available to provide information, also the, uh, blood pressure 
um, opportunities to check, you know, where you stand with your blood pressure, other um, health conditions. And I, I think that has worked out really well. There's some, there are challenges with um, privacy, right? You know, we want to make mm-hmm. sure that we're sensitive to, um, to people's um, needs and, and desires for privacy, especially when it comes to um, sensitive medical conditions. Um, but by and large, I think it's, it's an entry point, right? And it can be the start of um, people developing a, a more regular and positive relationship with their health providers and their own health. Mm-hmm. What about the um, the broadband technology aspect of it? Because telehealth, you know, that's the heart of broadband. The, the, uh, the broadband is the heart of your ability to be everywhere, both with, no, with mm-hmm. knowledge and also uh, access to healthcare professionals. Um, how do you uh, and your group address the uh, the connectivity, the broadband connectivity issues? Well, one of the things that uh, we focus on at Libraries Without Borders through all of our programs is ensuring that, uh, that the, the sites where we work have access to broadband services um, because fast, you know, reliable uh, Internet is critical for accessing all kinds of information, um, but particularly mm-hmm health information and, and telehealth services. Um, so although that can look different uh, based on the location, oftentimes we're working either um, in partnership with a library and their own IT department to help bring um, internet services uh, to a, a laundromat or with um, local internet service providers or even national internet service providers. Um, in places like Puerto Rico, we are actually um, building uh, wireless mesh networks uh, to expand connectivity from the community centers that we um, have set up and are working in to the neighboring areas so that folks can access it in the safety of their homes, especially with, um, you know, the ongoing pandemic. Uh, So it's absolutely essential to our work, whether, you know, we're focusing on health information or early learning and literacy. Okay, that, that that makes sense. Are there certain types of libraries that are more ideal than others in terms of, you know, forming these partnerships as you go around the country? Yeah, I, I think that ideally we want to, we always, you know, it's in our name, Libraries Without Borders. We always want <laughs> to work with um, with libraries wherever we are. Um, but we understand that not all libraries have the capacity to engage in um, outreach activities at the local laundromat or in a manufactured housing community. So a lot of what we um, focus on is uh, providing opportunities to promote and, and build um, library capacity. And also um, there might be limitations when it comes to funding, right? A library just doesn't have the, the money to be able to support um, engaging in any of, of these types of outreach um, programs because uh, sometimes it's seen as, as um, a bit risky, you know, what, um, how many people are we actually going to be able to reach if we have an outreach librarian um, at, at the laundromat on Wednesday evenings um, as opposed to, you know, being inside um, and able to directly work with and support patrons. Um, mm-hmm. So what we, we also focus on in addition to that capacity building piece is um, 
serving as, you know, a space for safe failure. Um, so a library can have a really low um, investment, you know, just commit to coming to the laundromat or coming to this um, uh, church for one day a week, right? And let's see, like, how effective this uh, this strategy is, how many people you're able to reach. And really um, then being able to uh, provide them with data that, that demonstrates whether or not it's worth their own investment. And then in turn, libraries can then go to the city and say, look, we um, ran this pilot program with Libraries Without Borders in this laundromat, and we were able to, you know, reach 50 to 60, 70 people in two days, right, um, mm -hmm. and have them sign up for library cards. And um, I, I think that when you have uh, data like that or even anecdotes like that, it's easier to justify, hey, we need more money for our outreach librarians to continue to do this great work. So creating that space for safe failure to try new strategies, um, and then uh, making sure that we support libraries and librarians with the tools and training they need to be able to um, conduct effective outreach in non-traditional spaces is really like essential to our model and how we operate mm -hmm. across not only the U.S. but um, all over the world. Right. No, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we got just a few minutes here. Um, how? Um, how? Um, much do you think having telehealth services would impact a library's ability to raise money? The reason I would say that or ask that question is, you know, you have, you know, you, if someone comes in knocks on the door, hey, we want to put some extra um, uh, Wi-Fi or we want to bring a fiber network in to our library to make it, uh, you know, make us able to serve more people, right? So that's one pitch. But if I come in and say I can change the health outcomes of the kids in the neighborhood, the uh, the seniors in the neighborhood, and so forth, and I can bring data to show that, isn't that worth a few extra dollars more? <laughs> I completely agree. I completely agree. <laughs> no, I think to me it, it, it's so clear that you know the library, like libraries, are well positioned to. They already, you know, offer so many more resources than just access to to books or or technology. And if they were able to provide telehealth services um, to community members, it's to me it's it's very clear that of course that would have you know, positive health outcomes uh, for community members and it's totally worth <laughs> whatever, you know, it would have such a high return on investment that um, to me there's no question about, um, you know, trying to to uh, offer that or extend their services to include that. But I know that there are a number of privacy-related challenges and other challenges. So uh, I, I am hopeful for the future and I think that there is great value in that. But um, I know that there are a few details to iron out before that can be that before that will be possible across you know all libraries mm -hmm. okay um, so my last question um, there are a number of folks who are sitting on the fence when I say it I mean both um, libraries and also patrons um, where 
there's the Z-Wiz factor of, you know, telehealth. It's a new, um, you know, way to access healthcare. Um, but then you have folks say at the same time, but that may cost money and it may take time. And, you know, we're, we have to go invest in a kiosk, you know, to make this work and so forth. So there's a lot I see, a lot of... Um, uh, debate and a lot of fence sitting. What would you give as far as advice or encouragement to libraries, their staffs, and their patrons to you know to get them more engaged and maybe getting on board with the telehealth train? I think there's uh, there are a number of um, successful models uh, that libraries can turn to for, um, you know, getting a sense of how they can start to um, enter or um, not enter the telehealth space, but expand their own service offerings to include mm -hmm. telehealth. Um, and, and turning to some of these examples would be the, like, where the first thing I would do, the, the um, getting a lay of the land, essentially, you know, what's been mm -hmm. done, what's worked, and also understanding what hasn't worked. Um, and looking uh, a little bit selfishly, I guess I would suggest that um, libraries uh, reach out to us because that's, again, that's what we do. We're here to help um, create that space for safe failure and for trying new things, for um, developing uh, pilot projects so that before, you know, they invest a significant chunk of their own resources, um, wh whether that be through literal money or librarians' time, that uh, they have that data that you mentioned to justify, you know, uh, uh, making that investment and having a, a much um, a much more substantive intervention um, through uh, engagement with um, the Wash and Learn initiative, um, so bringing their outreach librarians and telehealth services to folks at the laundromat, or or even transforming um, like a storage room inside a, a library itself and and turning that into a private telehealth space. We can support those efforts. Um, we can share some of the um, best practices we've gleaned through our own um, health literacy pilot projects and ongoing efforts uh, to help really support them as they try to figure out what the best model is for them uh, to engage in and, and support telehealth for their own community members. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I am very happy that you have made some time to talk to my audiences about uh, your program, the, the Wash and Learn program, and I think it's really uh, cool. I mean, going to laundromat is just, you know, I mean, I, I don't look at it as a party. It's more like a death sentence almost. But um, there are a lot of people who I, you know, that look at the laundromat space as just a social time and you have, um, you know, figured out how to, you know, engage people in that hour, 2.5 hours, and I just think this is really a great program. So, uh, many kudos. Uh, let's hope to do you know, more uh, in the, the upcoming months and so forth, and uh, I appreciate your time very much.
Thank you so much, Craig. I really appreciate also you giving me the opportunity and Libraries Without Borders the opportunity to tell our story a bit more and kind of raise awareness of, of the work that we're doing. So thank you again. No problem, no problem. And to my audience, thank you to, uh, for being here. Uh, next week, we're going to have three shows in that time. It's going to be a little crazy, but there's going to be lots of really good knowledge, both for telehealth and for um, uh, broadband. So I will see you next week. Have a great weekend.